Three, two, one. Anthony Darby. Shaw Ken. We are joined with Jackie Cohen Roth. Thank you so much for making a trip down here. Absolutely. I'm excited to be here. Um, if you guys are somehow unfamiliar with Jackie, which I doubt that you are if you're in the Maryland industry, but if you are, Jackie has T-Pad, which is a platform. Well, I'll let you explain. Sure. Give yeah. us uh, the quick, you know, quick overview of, of T-Pad. Sure. So uh, T-Pad is a social enterprise, meaning it's a for-profit business, but focused on social change. And our mission is to break down barriers to entry into the cannabis industry and to empower access, no matter gender or race, via education. So proceeds of TPAD events uh, fund the TPAD scholarship for minority entrepreneurship. That's awesome. Um, real quick, give uh, everyone a quick overview of your background and how you got into the cannabis industry. Um, kind of the number one question we get from most of our guests is like how do they get to, to do this people think that it's somehow we just ma- we have a magic wand or it's it's <laughs> it's without the absence of like 10 years of super hard work and grinding so just <laughs> to set the record the scary sure, looks at your bank account I, yeah. I'm just saying I, I, we don't know each other that well but I also make every guest come out here and say how poor they get from yeah. Yeah. the cannabis industry <laughs> and if they took a pay cut um, uh, Laura actually went through the details of hers pretty significantly but I mean it's just I, if nothing else we can dispose some of these myths that uh, I'm just going to leave my job and go get in the cannabis industry and make six figures and just oh, no. test, test product all day. As this, you know, this infamous yeah, product tester product. job <laughs> that I see pop up on social media all the time. So um, please give me a little bit of bio of, of how you got into cannabis and what you did before cannabis. Sure, yeah. Well, I say, um, yeah, cannabis is literally and figuratively the missing puzzle piece in my brain. Um, so, um, as many in the industry introduced to it at a young age and, um, my background, actually, uh, my father was a physician, my sister's a physician, very much a science focused family. And, um, so I started off my education, secondary education, pre-med, um, hit that point in many folks education path where you come up against organic chemistry. And at the same time, I was taking an international relations course or something like this from a, um, oh my gosh, what a lovely gentleman. He was retired, a diplomat. And I was, uh, um, that, at that point I was pre-med at Allegheny College in Pennsylvania. And uh, so this fabulous um, professor said, if this is what you would like to study, and uh, he said, you need to go back home to Syracuse, Syracuse University and the Maxwell School, which I proudly say is the number one school of public policy in the country. So um, did that, studied uh, policy and economics, double major and then the minor in international political economies. Ooh, uh, yeah, and because uh, I'm a, <laughs> I'm an underachiever, I did a double major and minor in three and a half years, and I highly recommend that. You really don't need to do that. <laughs> yeah, so uh, especially when I was Are you looking from the Syracuse area, is that yeah, where? yeah, yeah. So I grew up outside of Syracuse, awesome. and I fished in a Pulaski and Oswego. Uh, oh, did you know Mexico? New York? I don't know Mexico, oh New York. Oh my gosh, is yeah. That, is that out by there? Yeah, yeah. We would always go like um, fishing for salmon and trout and stuff uh, like Yeah, Mexico. Oh my gosh, you talk about the snow belt. So yeah, we had yeah, grew right up. there, huh? Yeah. Uh, fortunate, we had, um, my parents had bought, I don't know how many acres it was, you know, hundreds of acres of, had been at one time um, an active farm. And anyway, lots of lots of great memories about that place, but lots lot of, of lots of snow, yeah, <laughs> lots of snow. We didn't snowmobile, but you know, my my fondest memories. My dad was a World War II vet, and 
marching us around the field to army songs and, and I was <laughs> stringing Chuck's heart now the youngest of four yeah, so I, I was the last so, in line so that's where this determination comes in to take two majors and yeah. a minor and grind through this right exactly in between dodging the cow pies yeah yeah, yeah. cow pies yeah but in any event so um came out of school and um I had at that point wanted to uh, um, get into international banking, hence, you know, that was what I was studying. And so followed that track where um, moved um, from Maryland, uh, a great phrase, I, or rather from uh, Syracuse, got an MRS that misses, <laughs> met a, uh, uh, my uh, ex-husband, he was a law student. We had a fantastic opportunity for introduction to Maryland where we were part of uh, Senator Paul Sarbanes' re-election campaign in 1982. So that was fantastic, and um, there's I, some Sarbanes here on the Eastern Shore. Yeah, well, that's where he's from. Yeah, yeah, it's, and you're singing the praises, man. Yeah, I mean, some people listen to this podcast yeah. and they get the, the feels yeah. for an '82 Paul Sarbanes <laughs> campaign. Oh my God! I mean, it was just to uh, you know sit in on the floor of uh, somebody's home eating pizza with the senator and watching the Orioles, and they were in the playoffs. I, yeah, that's awesome. It was really man. really cool. That's old and, school uh, politics, yeah. man. Yeah, and you know, I've maintained these relationships where. Um, um, I uh, went and visited uh, Congressman John Sarbanes in, in uh, D.C. in another career that I had. But yeah, and then folks that um, I today still have relationships with that were part of that campaign. Was that all around the Annapolis area? Or that like was statewide. statewide. So it was just a phenomenal introduction to get to know Maryland and made it home. So it's been good to me. Very good to me. So anyway, went... Um, uh, banking, um, raised a family, uh, dabbled in, I wanted to go back and uh, become an architect. <laughs> so while my kids were really little, um, that was a real challenge where uh, kids were little. I don't know if you have any. Three. Uh, okay, so and yeah. two. I two. Okay, so I had a litter, as I say, you know, three and four years. <laughs> and um, taking on a gra uh, the architecture program. Um, and at that time, uh, my husband, ex-husband, was uh, out of, um, he was doing something where he was out of the state, setting up another practice four nights a week, and I was in architecture and three kids, and I'd come home from school Thursday night, and I could count on my oldest at the time was nine, and crying and saying, I miss daddy, and I would cry, I miss daddy too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And in any event, I uh, decided that, um, at that point, just to set that program aside. Um, but uh, at that time was also what could be or what was um, a career that where uh, raising my family was number one. And um, so that took me to media sales and where there was a parenting publication. And I thought, oh, I could take my, my kids around with me. I was a target market. And my that time, my 29-year-old was four, and she used to have a little cell phone, plastic cell phone, and I'd take her into meetings, <laughs> and it was great. And um, Chuck takes yeah. Libby to the bank. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Libby taking Libby to the bank yeah, to see Miss Keisha and like, right. she just hangs out and goes to work. You know, and that's to take your daughter all, to work day yeah, every single day. Yeah, we, yeah. Quite not, often, we all do. Not every yeah. day, but it's, you know, we're, we're all very family-oriented, and uh, Corpon has three kids. Mary Pat's got a daughter. I have three little girls. 
Chuck's got a boy and a girl, so three little girls. Ooh. Yeah, all yeah, I have all three apart. girls. Well, okay, hang on tight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm ready for it. So it just be gone. <laughs> Why are you gonna open oh, the dispensary? Yeah. This is not a need. Whatever you did is gonna come back to in spades. <laughs> Senior week 1999. Sorry. Yep. Um, anyway, so in any event, so uh, let's see. Your, your you know, I was life. doing um, yeah, working part time. I mean, I was always doing something. Actually, you know, many things and. Um, one thing led to another where the um, uh, career in uh, media at that time, the print, just uh, took off and I loved it. And it pulled in the architecture classes where I had studied design and all the elements. So um, a fellow that I was working with, um, we got a, one of the first glossy, beautiful lifestyle magazines off the ground. And um, doing that for a period of time, parted company, I went on to do some consulting and marketing. And um, he circled back to me and uh, said, hey, I'm getting a, um, um, a physician-focused magazine off the ground. Do you want to join me? I said, I'll never do another startup again. You know, <laughs> famous last words. Famous last words. <laughs> you know <how> yeah. <laughs> um, so he came back to me a year later and said, hey, I'm moving out of market. Do you want to take this over? And um, I did. And so it was just such a great fit for me where it brought back in. Um, I've always maintained this interest in, in clinical medicine and clinical science and um, policy, you know, healthcare policy. So it was just fantastic. And um, I grew that opportunity, launched, funny enough, they never, I'll never start a magazine again, but then went off and launched two on my own. Um, and had those going, um, grew the magazines into regional magazines where our focus was on innovations in healthcare, uh, best practices, healthcare information technology, policy law compliance. Um, I started uh, my company built up where I was developing strategies for physician referrals for the all the large systems in the uh, DC, Maryland, Virginia. So working with all the the big names like MedStar and Hopkins and Innova, and um, doing some mini mag mini magazines, both uh, business to business and and uh, business to consumer. So really enjoyed it. And at, that was the time then um, through that period, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act came into play. Um, good for business at first, where the requirement that all the providers had to have uh, HIT, healthcare information technology, part of their practice. Um, but then things started to shift, where as the systems and hospitals were buying up the independent practices, they didn't need my services anymore. And I saw the revenue decline and like, uh, well, you know, thinking about what the next thing that I was going to do and what the pivot was going to be. But uh, all along the way, of course, is paying attention to cannabis. And as it was uh, became legal medically on the East, on the West Coast rather, and then um, in our content, part of innovation was educating the physicians and raising their awareness of alternative treatment therapies and medical cannabis being one of those. Um, and uh, so I decided to close that business. It was really, really challenging decision. It was my referred to as my fourth child. It was Mojo Media. And I went to work for um, my best client at the time, a very large imaging practice. And 
Uh, six months in, I essentially got in a fellowship in radiology <laughs> where um, I needed to know the insides of an MRI machine, CT, you know, be able to have the clinical speak, I mean, to intelligently support a sales team that I was managing, um, all that. But decided, you know what, this isn't for me. Um, thanked him very much. Went to work for Nordstrom for 90 days and um, I spent four times what I earned. <laughs> so, That's awesome. <laughs> I uh, um, yeah, was there for the no- famous Nordstrom annual sale. <laughs> but so my mother to work at Bloom's Sonoma, like part-time oh and my I God, what a, and it was just, no paychecks. No. <laughs> but <laughs> the takeaway. Nice yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I've always had people know who know me know I love my love my shoes and love my clothes. But um, the takeaway was that I need to be autonomous in what I do. And um, I need to be in a creative environment. And that was great. You know, being in Nordstrom is just, you know, the, the folks that I was working with and um, the personalities and people and all of that. So, um I just it was while I was there I was cooking up the idea of what eventually became Cannabis MD. And what year was that? Was uh, early 2017. So, um, you know, I relate to a lot of your autonomous needs, and like I just I can't imagine if, if I had to go back and like be a rank and file employee somewhere. Mm. Like I just it's scary, right? It's, yeah, scary it's, one of, it's one of my driving. Honestly, it's one of the things that drives me in terms of like my own personal fears is like you know the death of a salesman book. Like mm-hmm. that's like you know my father made a lot of money and spent a lot of money and you know died with nothing. And like I just the trying to be a forty five year old sales guy competing against twenty three year old college kids with no kids at home and the ability to sleep eight hours and go out and do all that. It's just like, it's, it's like one of my, my biggest fears. So, um, I know who I am and, and I have to work for myself. I have to be able to create these opportunities. I have to really feel what I'm doing. If you just put me in a cube, it's not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and to your point, I mean, this is sort of fast forwarding or, uh, in my career is why I'm in graduate school is that to stay relevant, you know, ahead of the curve. So um, you are um, in the inaugural class? Yeah. Is that the proper terminology, inaugural class? Yep, inaugural cohort of um, a Master's of Science in Medical Cannabis Science and Therapeutics, University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. So is that the first program like that? In the country country, and in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, I had, um, as part of Cannabis MD, uh, I knew the program was was coming down the pike and they tried to get it off the ground in 2017, but it was shut down. For for about 11 days. (laughs) The Attorney General called up Dean Eddington and said, hey, you're gonna be arrested for trafficking. Yeah, so at that point it was plant touching. Right, so like, okay, yep, (laughs) let's revisit how we're going to do this. Um, But event, so I had an interview with her scheduled uh, for July second and of this past summer, uh, summer of twenty nineteen. Is there an interview for a a spot in the in the cohort? No, this was uh, for content on Cannabis MD. I read that. Yeah. Yeah, starting dose, yeah. And uh, so they made the announcement July 1 that the program was starting and applications were going to be shortly accepted. And uh, it was such a phenomenal conversation that I had with her uh, that then I went home and was noodling on, wow, you know, this is something that I am so passionate about. and that the opportunity to be in the first cohort. And of course, being an entrepreneur and uh, the challenges, the economic challenges of what that is, 
but oh, I mean, what an opportunity! So you know, thinking long and hard about the highest and best use of time and money. What um. Can you tell us anything about the cohort? Like, do you have you seen your, your classmates? Oh yeah, yeah. So, so the model is it's um, uh, all of it is online, um, and that as a somebody who has not been in school for decades, uh, revisiting that. Um, it's like, take, like you write your paper, yeah. but submitting the paper to the portal is like another hour, uh, right? Well, just like you know, learning the online. I mean, but then I've just absolutely fallen in love with it. But you know, figuring out how to access this robust library. But for somebody who's a geek at heart, both in policy and science, it's like you know, kid in a candy store online now. So that's tremendous. But yeah, we have a cohort of 150. Um, the requirement is that um, everybody gets together one time per semester at Shady Grove. Um, of course, outside of DC, the class we have such a spectrum of students and experiences that um, many are not don't have any background in cannabis. Um, I have uh, somebody; um, she's now a dispensary attendant. She graduated from Maryland 2018. Um, she's supporting me with doing some research and things, both for uh, cannabis MD as well as TPAD. But um, for you know, being a recent college grad. To actually, we have practicing physicians who are in the class. Um, I've got that's cool. At least they're taking that kind of step to you know the realization. Yeah, that, hey, this is something that maybe we should learn about whether or not you know. Yeah, I mean, I'm wholeheartedly, but it's here to stay. Absolutely, I've got somebody actually on our um, in part of my capstone project. She works for the FDA. Right, um, somebody from Hong Kong, somebody from Australia. So it's um, really exciting to be part of. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, not anywhere near the same magnitude, but um, at University of Maryland Eastern Shore. So, um, Dr. Hoffman and uh, Jim Brissett from UMES. I don't know if you know. Yeah, him. I do know him. So yes, they both were um, went under Natalie Eddington through that University of Maryland. They all know how to know each other. So, Dr. Hoffman and Dr. Brissett taught selected topics of medicinal cannabis to doctor to pharmacy students mm-hmm. at UMES. And um, it was really cool to be a part of that first class at the time and um, really bringing pharmacy uh, majors in that had n- no idea about cannabis. And um, it was really interesting to be able to open their eyes and, and to know that, like, these pharmacists that are now going out into the world will be the first time that pharmacists actually have some knowledge about cannabis. So if a patient comes to them in Rite Aid and says, hey, by the way, how's this going to interact with the cannabis that I use or CBD that I take every day? Maybe they don't just look at them with 10 eyes, but say, well, actually, I, I learned about that in school. I know about endocannabinoid system. Mm-hmm. I understand these things. Oh, I go in to see my, um, when I see my pharmacist at Rite Aid, and they're like, like oh, hey, I learned this. <laughs> and um, what was oh, was so cool, and it was, I say, it was a personal professional highlight. Um, earlier, uh, first part of December, I went to Malta. And uh, had the opportunity to uh, built a panel and moderated a panel on uh, innovation in medical cannabis industry in Malta, and less than a semester under my belt, but being in some pretty high level presentations and like, hey, I understand that now, and and I'm so tremendous. And then it was a personal check mark too, is that I had started an MBA, and I put it aside when I started my family, so check that box That's as awesome. well. Yeah. Um, and a two-year program, right? Uh, yeah, round the clock, two years, right? And uh, so when your, when's your estimated graduation? May 2021. That's awesome. Yeah. So that'll be really exciting. So there'll be 150 potential mm-hmm. graduates coming out of yep. the first cohort. And <clears throat> will they start um, classes in between? 
Like yeah, so they are so accepting now students. Be Correct. A new class, yep. and this will be something that yeah, keeps... just ongoing. And so you know, we are in essence kind of the guinea pigs. So um, oh, I was um, so proud of myself as I actually sent an email to the associate dean and the dean, actually to the dean, and said, "All due respect, um, I see something that you need to edit in your lecture." Marijuana. It was no, no, no. Oh. It was um, re regarding uh, THC and um, uh, oral dosage, and that it was something to the effect that uh, uh, all patients will could experience. I mean, it was like something you know pretty drastic. It wasn't psychotic, but episodes, but you know, high anxiety, something like that. Yeah. And I uh, said, you need a modifier in there that insert the word can. Yeah. And so it was great. So the dean, I happened to see her at an event a couple of days later, and the associate dean, and they said, you don't have to worry about adding with all due respect, as we, you know, we appreciate yeah, it's open dialogue what, yeah, what you're saying, and we've, we've made the change. So, like, yeah, like you said, you guys are the guinea pigs, and like, right. I mean, you're trying to put together this program where there really is no research because it's there's not, no there's yeah no there's nothing there's no you know there's nothing minimal so textbooks minimal textbooks yeah. so it's kind of you're starting at the ground and building this thing correct so no not there's not one person that knows I feel like that knows exactly what they're talking about right it's just this combination of ideas from everybody and to have a you know a bunch of the, people the word expert is thrown around so damn much like um. So we weren't going to get into CBD this early, but just I opened up. We have a um, talk about your glossy lifestyle uh, publication. Mm -hmm. We have the Metropolitan Magazine, which is the mm -hmm. fine Eastern Shore lifestyle magazine. And I open it up, and what do I see to my surprise? But three full page ads of CBD experts. Mm. Now, one place we called up just to find out the CBD store in Ocean City, and they told us that all their products are FDA approved. Over the phone. <laughs> Oops, no. <laughs> the uh, and you know the other the other company is selling a Nanda, which just got caught in a you know a third party test with um, like ninety eight times the accepted levels of lead in one of their products. I mean, it's all just, the scary and, stuff. That's why I said. I mean, it's that's why everyone's I, an expert, yeah, right? Yeah. So like, <clears throat> I'm glad that we're finally starting to put together some formal training and yeah. some actually some designations around this. Um, it's a little chicken egg right now, uh, to your point, where like some of the students are teaching the teachers, right? Mm -hmm. And that's something that we struggle with a lot. Is, you know, I feel very wholeheartedly that we have one of the industry experts in the country and Dr. Hoffman. And a lot of that's just because we see 250 patients a day. Mm -hmm. It's repetition. Like we see the volumes of the patients. We see the cases. We have pediatric patients. We have elderly patients. We have, we have it all, uh, the entire gamut. And because she sees them, I believe that her practical knowledge is is much higher than most of the, the doctors that we I mean, speak to. I mean, it's anecdotal, you know, evidence yeah. versus the evidence-based research. I mm -hmm. mean, it's so powerful is these are people that you're seeing the change. Um, and that is, I have on Cannabis MD, and I'm just a uh, uh, shorthand for that, CBMD, patient stories. And when um, I was developing what our platform was going to be and our content, I was like, oh, I'm only going to have uh, certified Maryland patient stories on the site. And then... I started getting the stories, and there's a fellow that I was introduced online, got himself off of heroin, using cannabis, and he was in Tennessee. And people need to hear these yeah. stories, and I know you guys are seeing them in the, the dispensary. Family members, the family members are the best. Like, we had a daughter saying, like, my mom has been a horrible grandmother. She's been disjointed from our family because she was on so many pills. 
Now she's on cannabis. She's involved. She's picking her daughter up from school. Like mom's just back. Just mom's yeah, back. Yeah, like yeah. you forget sometimes that not only are these folks hurting themselves, but they have a role to play within their family structure, right. within the community, and they're they're disenfranchised oftentimes when they get on these heavy medications. And um, I mean, we could go on and on in terms of this. One of the things that we see, because we have a pharmacist, is where we catch a lot of these pharmaceutical nightmares. So, you know, we had a lady come in who was utterly patient, who was given 100 milligrams of Oxy one time a day at night. So she's taking this Oxy, she's going to sleep, and then she wakes up to withdrawal. And she lives every day oh in absolute agony of opiate withdrawal until the nighttime comes and they give her a pill again. And, like, just just breaking that that cycle up, and, and redosing her and then phasing in CBD and then eventually phasing in THC as well. But it was, I mean, it was a pharmaceutical nightmare. Oh, talk about pharmaceutical happening. nightmares. How about these drugs that are formulated to counteract the side effects? So you're on this, like I saw a commercial last night for uh, something that treats tachycardia where you you have the tremors and muscle you know twinges because of these, uh, an antidepressant. And so, you know, you're layering on these medications and side effects. I mean, we have patient stories that, you know, um, these people are impacted by these side effects for life. Yeah. Cannabis does not we, do that. No. no, <laughs> no yeah. It doesn't. And I mean, uh, there are certainly some things it does not treat, but yet there are yeah. a lot of things that it's very efficacious. Especially in this day and age, when you look at it, when all the drugs that people are being prescribed, right? It's depression, it's anxiety, it's like ADHD, like some of these things that we can treat using cannabis right. instead of the prescription drugs. Like, I mean, it's crazy to think that we wouldn't be doing that this day and age. Because like yeah. you said, just add one prescription on to another mm-hmm, and just, another and another. Right. And what happens is down down. I'm depressed, so they give me a pill, but this it, it messes up my appetite. So here's a pill for that. Right. But that messes up my sleep. Well, then here's a pill for that. Next right. thing you know, you're on six pills or 13. We had a, a patient came in. She's my age. She's on 13 pills, four different blood pressure, blood pressure medications, and she's 36 years old. It's, it's That's scary. It's scary. Yeah. Um, and we even and just to go full circle, we talk. You know, we, we're going to get into some of the provider education mm-hmm. and, and why it's so important. We had a provider come in one of these pop up docs, and he was offering to write a nausea medication with every single cannabis certification because of hyperemesis syndrome. <laughs> now that sounds completely absurd to all of us, but in his head, you can. I'm almost, shaking my head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can almost see how if he doesn't know anything and he and he reads an article about hyperemesis syndrome and he thinks that. But meanwhile, we in the know know that cannabis is one of the best anti-nausea medications available to mankind. Yeah, why would you want? So it's just it's scary sometimes. And we originally, you know, because of of all the nonsense with the providers and we uh, in this area, you mentioned the the buy up of um, practices by a hospital system. So mm-hmm. PRMC did that over the last five years. They pretty much acquired all the specialists, mm-hmm. and what that means is that they ensure and provided the DEA licensing that all these physicians have. Mm-hmm. So if they wanted to write a cannabis certification, they're no longer able to act on their own independent right. nature. They're right. not part of this big system. Right. So let's say that 85% of the doctors are now part of the system and they're not going to be able to write a certification. So we don't have them. And then a couple of the independents, they're not into it. So you only have this select few folks that are writing these certifications. And originally we thought that we could kind of tackle this like, us against the world like mm-hmm. who cares just get the certification come to us and we can we can fix everything 
And that's just, unfortunately, it's not the case. You need an interdisciplinary approach. You need to have a dialogue with all the physicians in charge. Um, your pharmacist needs to be involved. Everyone needs to be dialoguing and, and discussing health outcomes. And that's really where we're moving uh, in the future and is, is getting more comprehensive, is, is really trying to get um, an interdisciplinary approach where we actually have physicians that, you know, are doing pain management and they're also aware of the cannabis. I mean, we, had, we had a patient get kicked out of physical therapy discharged because they were a cannabis patient like so they were in pain management pain management drug tested them they failed for cannabis the pain management doctor then and then of course there's the like crazy low what you're tested for with cannabis and how that presents in a drug test but anyway yeah then then that pain management yeah. doctor contacted the primary care physician and the physical therapy and he was discharged from everything so i mean and that goes you know medical ethics i mean that's just seems like a violation on a and, and yeah. so the way they get away with it right now is because it's still fairly legal, right? Right. And you mentioned your, your background. Um, I'm a poli-sci major. Um, so I, I get really into the weeds and a wonkiness when we talk cannabis policy. And, like, sometimes I get frustrated when, um, you know, I see publications or publicizing of something like the House Judiciary Committee last week or two weeks ago and, and the decriminalization bill because, mm-hmm. you know, I see Facebook and everyone's sharing and posting and it's like the greatest thing in the world. And I, I wonder if those same folks are 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 adamant about reaching out to their, their legislators, if those same folks are going to follow this bill through the entire process of what it takes. Because what we see is that um, the safe banking bill was the first bill that, to my knowledge, that passed on a House vote as an independent. So Mm -hmm. up until these last few votes, um, most people aren't aware of this, but almost all the legislation or the policy around what we do were typically put in the funding bills. And that's why they are voted on year to year. And when you see, um, like Jeff Sessions um, was not going to update the, um, oh, what am I thinking of? Um, the, the Rohrbach, the yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah. Rohrbach Farm Amendment. Yep, yep. Yes. And that the Rohrbacher Farm Amendment, uh, that's what's in the cannabis, uh, that's what's actually what's in the funding bill. That's an amendment to the funding bill. And that's what protects us as long as we don't violate interstate commerce. There's also the other. How about um, the scary that went, the, the, the shivers that went through the industry? I think that was maybe February of 2018. Yeah. And yeah. And um, yeah. And I, I happened to be with some attorneys that day. And they said they were advising their clients not to sign any uh, long-term contracts, anything that would potentially hold you personal liable. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it's crazy, and that's just, and that's a year ago, right? Right. Uh, right. Yeah, like, people just don't understand think how fast to... this industry moves. Oh, it's dog right? years, like, all right? Of a sudden, yeah. I mean, all of a sudden, one day we're all sitting here like white as a ghost, like right. hands, like oh my god, we have no work. Like it's all gonna get shut down. Everybody hates us, and then the next day it's like oh wow, we got all these amendments coming in, and things are looking yeah. great, and it's just you got to kind of learn to read through a lot of these things before yeah and try to understand like what, what does it really mean like safe banking like what that means to me is that there's more uh support than than there was last year and the year before that but 
I'm still going to be at Severn for the next two years. Like, I don't see any way that PNC Bank is coming to me in two years and saying, hey, great news, like, Congress figured everything out and we're ready to but take you your money. But you know they're sitting on the sidelines and waiting yeah. and watching and building teams. And, and, and they are. They absolutely yep. 100% I mean, it's just, are. It's, there's too much money. And they're watching, they're watching the severs of the world, yep. right? And they're watching some of these smaller banks. Yeah. Um, and they have lobbyists. And at some point in time, you know, the, the lobbyists say, hey, uh, that big pharma lobbyist needs to move on out because I want some of this, right. This, you know, and I mean, that's how it's going to get done. I is, agree. You know, it's just, that's the way it's going to get done. Is it's it's just, um, you know, pl- so politically motivated. Um, you see McConnell, what he's done in um, Kentucky yep. and with hemp and John Boehner, yeah. the idea. We have some colleagues yeah. that are working hand in hand with John Boehner right now, which sounds crazy to think about yeah. with this cannabis round, round table, but... Um, Progress is is being made, and you're right. It's it's financially driven in yeah. most in most cases. It's unfortunate that it's not for all the right reasons, and it's not that you know all of a sudden they found that patients could actually benefit from a medicine, or that people have been unjustly prosecuted for the last last seventy five years. But it's. Yeah, but you know, and and so that is why, you know, just again, before we veer into it, but education, you know, is that people are, uh, I think it's sixty two percent per pew. um, research that are in favor of access to medical cannabis. No, maybe far higher. I think yeah, that was high. It's like 83, 83, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in any event, so just, um, you know, the two lanes of cannabis, uh, one being recreational use and then the second being medical and just, um, you know, education, education, education. Yeah. We don't do ourselves favor in terms of having a unanimous voice. You know, it, it 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 is challenging sometimes. I think you know when some of these other, like for instance, the banking industry. You know, those guys fight 364 days a year. But when it's banking day on the hill, everyone puts on their best suit. Okay. All the lobbyists come lock stock, and they have a very clean cut mission of what they're going to ask for and what they expect to get. And it's it's challenging because the cannabis industry has so many needs. Right. Oh, we need right, testing. Right. Mm-hmm. right. We need social justice reform. We need to figure out if adults should have the right to be able to use a me- like to be yeah. able to use outside of if they have a medical. But just you know access to capital. I'm non plant touching. I can't. I can't get any funding. No, and then I'm tapping in. I just hit my IRA, so which I swore I would never hit. Even though you're non-plant touching, there's Correct. still no funding. Yep, the SBA, you know, of course, it's a federal we've program. Been, yeah, we've been turned down. Yep. Um, we, uh, Salisbury has an entrepreneurship competition. Mm-hmm. University. Yeah. I would I like to say that, that my mentor won this competition, mm-hmm. but I've not been able to participate in the competition you, because of our industry. Mm-hmm. So when we came back and we launched Peninsula Holistics, which is a hemp-based CBD business in line with the 2018 farm bill and i thought that i was on federal grounds to say you have to let me compete it was a quick no thank you and the sba moves a little slower than federal government sometimes i'm like well the federal government moves slow as dog yeah. shit <laughs> sba moves slower than them my goodness gracious you know to that experience so when um in 2018 i went through um this terrific program um uh, Leadership Maryland, and yes. so yeah, so I was a uh, cohort of fifty-one of us. What did you do? What class? Uh, Twenty eighteen. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, oh my gosh, yeah, talking about banking. So uh, you know, in there with bank CEOs and the universities and. 
just about uh, every head of a state agency Was goes Eli through this. Holden in that? No, oh, well, no, okay. but um, yeah, one of uh, so the first day we're all together to retreat over at the um, Chesapeake Bay. Hyatt. Yeah, the Hyatt, and uh, you know I was the outlier in the cannabis industry. And um, this former bank CEO, or actually, I think he retired and came out of retirement, comes up to me and says, Jackie, you don't look like a stoner. <clears throat> Welcome to the new face of yep. cannabis, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And we then, actually, I don't sit on myself and eat Doritos all day, right? I have, yeah. But, um, and then, you know, I had um, in my class um, leadership from Frostburg, Salisbury, Towson, and I said, I need interns. You know, I would love to support the programs, um, entrepreneurship, business, uh, whatever it is. And nope, because of Schedule One. Well, this tide is shifting where I am so excited um, uh, beginning in um, the spring semester. So January 2020, I have a student coming, uh, joining me from my alma mater, Maxwell School. So a policy studies major. um, What else? She's a double major. And a minor as well. And I said, you know, don't rush it. <laughs> so is that considered an internship for her? She's going and to have the a... The Maxwell School, will they accept yes, that? Yes, yeah. Awesome. So That's a real formalized internship. And That's I'm in the highest level that I'm so excited That's to great. have her come on board. So, yeah. But yeah. I still so won't little, get any funding. Yeah. No, <laughs> no, you won't. But thank you for doing it. Like, yeah, thank you for doing it. I mean, that's the kind of stuff yeah. that we, to your point, like, I'm, I, that's a great story because I think people were surprised when we first kind of came out of the potential closet, so to say. I gave a presentation to Greater Salisbury Committee. And I think there was a couple of people that kind of always assumed, but there was a lot that were just like, how, how, what makes you, you know, how would you get in this? I'm like, I've used cannabis every day of my life. When I've, when I've talked to you, yeah, like I don't, <laughs> yes, yes. Like this is. Wait, and so um, how many cocktails did you have last night? Yeah. Or yeah. what, how many antidepressants are you on yeah. right now? Yeah. Or. <laughs> yeah. The only time that I've, I've probably given, you know, I've probably given two or 300 presentations. And the only one that's ever gone bad is um, Mary Pat and I gave a presentation to a local physicians group and they were sitting there drinking wine and drinking booze and at one point said that we were, this was before we opened our doors, that we were selling snake oil and making promises that there's no way we'd ever be able to live up to and you might as well tell people to smoke roses. I mean, <laughs> uh, we actually, I closed my lap. Mary Pat was about to, I asked, I said, calm down, we can get out of this. I tried to poli up. <laughs> Someone said I was a snake oil salesman. I slammed my laptop down and said, screw you guys. I didn't leave my kids to come out at 8 o'clock at night and be ridiculed like this. I go, if you think that we're here because we need your patients to come in our doors, we don't. They're going to come to us. We're here because we want you guys to be involved. We want your patients to be able to have an open dialogue with you guys. And some of those patients, or some of those physicians two years later, quite frankly, have changed their tune and, and are participating with us. And, you know. It- oh, I see. I, I say that I um, use the lens of my sister in everything that I'm, I'm doing clinically is where she's a very conservative orthopedic surgeon um, in California. And uh, I mean, the conversations, you know, Jackie, don't go into this industry, right? And um, if you look at Mary Pat, she's committing career suicide. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, the things that that have uh, she said to me. However, there was uh, it was last summer and I got a really short text message from her. What's your URL? Hmm. And I sent it back to her and cannabismd.com and then uh, waited a bit. And then 
you know, quick why question mark. And then um, she said, oh, I have, there's an EMT that uh, I see uh, somewhat regularly when I have my trauma cases. And um, he was talking to her about the efficacy of um, treating patients who are in the midst of um, seizuring. And, you know, he just, she, it made sense to her. And so, and then it was, you know, from that conversation, and so, you know, just kind of like the door is opening um, to then her daughter, my niece, is um, currently in a residency and at Case Western. And we had a phenomenal conversation. You know, she's just younger, um, open to it. Um, I've been had those patients that she's seen where, you know, rather than needle marks, you know, track marks on their arms and um, reading about the efficacy, pain management, I mean, all these things. So that's where it's, you know, reaching them, um, reaching them, the physicians with, um, you know, unfortunately, of course, with Schedule 1, we don't have that evidence-based research. I mean, it's so limited. But yet, if you can get these anecdotal stories out. It is, yeah. it, it's tough, um, the Schedule 1 thing. So kind of going back to the just open-ended question, I mean, in your time frame, if, if you see cannabis either being decriminalized or rescheduled, like in your estimation, what time would you say? Would you say we're three years, two years, a year, are we five, ten, are we months? Like, where do you see I'm five, you know, five. I mean, we definitely need, to, uh, you know, Democrats majority, you know, pre- Democratic president in, in, um, in the White House, uh, Democrats leading the Senate. Uh, that's the way that's going to happen. Um, but, you know, as the pressure's on with the constituencies, right, is that we were just talking about the majority of Americans want access to medical cannabis. Um, majorities want access to adult use, and they're going to be putting the pressures on. And you had, um, you know, with the um, this panel of uh, so many Democratic, the presidential uh, hopefuls, and everybody has a cannabis platform. Um, and so, you know, these conversations. Some better than others. Yeah, some admitting it, some yeah. don't, like, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm so surprised. Oh my gosh, it but the things like that, yeah. It seems like a no-brainer for any Democratic candidate. Like, if I'm a Democratic strategist and I hear Joe Biden talking anti-cannabis stuff, I feel like I'm like, shh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's interesting to see, you know, joke. yeah, I mean, Kamala Harris, you know, interesting political science story yeah. there. But I mean, she was the one who has been so vocal about um, using it. And then um, you know, uh, colleagues that I have in the industry of what she's done in, in California. In yeah. yeah. So, you know, interesting. But I also hear I think Corey she's Booker, on her way out. I mean, Cory Booker, very supportive. Yeah. Uh, oh my gosh! And the look on his face during yes. the last debate nah. with Biden. Yeah, <laughs> nah. yeah, 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 um, yeah. And I think it's becoming less of a bipartisan issue, right? Like I feel like more people from the other side of the aisle, from the Republican I side. I don't see it as a. I see it as a partisan issue at the congressional level when politics matter, but I don't see it as a voter demographic issue. Yes. I don't think that you can when you look at. it, it's, it's one of the unique things about our dispensary is that we're the only game in town for 30 miles, right? I mean, and you're pretty conservative. I mean, you're it's red here, sure. right? We, yeah. Yeah, we are. Yeah. But Salisbury is the least conservative town on the eastern shore, mm-hmm. I would argue. Um, and because you have the university because, here. And yeah, because right. we're the only... So, like, for instance, in Baltimore, right, if you have six dispensaries on York Road, they're all going to cater to a demographic. I would argue that 
Curio typically targets an older demographic. Your pharmacy is going to be a younger demographic. You look at their specials. Your pharmacy is advertising shatter sales and concentrate specials. Curio's got a new clinical director and things like right, that, right? right? But for us, we get it all. Mm-hmm. So when you look in our waiting room, we have the Trump 2020 construction yeah. worker with <laughs> the rainbow flag. Like our waiting room Isn't it is fascinating one of the most to see who comes e- in. Yeah. And I would argue that cannabis would be one of the few areas. It's like the normalizing, of, right? Of, yeah. Of, yeah. If you have a Venn diagram, it's cannabis is the thing in the middle yeah. that's bringing these folks together. So I do. I honestly believe that as we get we move forward, it's not as divisive of an issue. I'm, I just uh, the political science guy. I mean, is surprised that any politician at this point would take any any stance that is less than. Uh, accepting of, of cannabis, as a, yeah, I think especially it, as a medicine. Like Andrew Yang, I mean, some of these guys, I mean, they're making it, a, Andrew Yang's making a huge piece of his platform. Yeah, yeah, and I think everybody should pull into a dispensary parking lot and, you know, sit there for 10 minutes, five minutes, and just see who walks through, you know, is getting out of their car. And, you know, the handicaps, I mean, people, you know, have their caregivers driving them in. Um, it is not that, We still you, have 40% yeah. of our patients over 50. Mm-hmm. Um, we still have a ton of a patient population that are disabled, that are truly, you know, that, that aren't, it's not what, and, and Mary Pat, I, I talk about her a lot, but she, you know, she was a pharmacist in town where she, next to a rehab facility where they would come in, they would get, um, methadone or whatever their substitution therapy for, for opiates were, and they would go to back and sell it. And she watched all of that. Mm-hmm go down yeah. she watched the people that were getting 120 pills every week so it's and our, our we don't have that we don't have a lot of irate patients we don't have a lot of we don't really have a lot of issues we find that you know for the most part our patients are, they get along and they're pretty respectful of each other and it's, it's a place where they can be themselves because they're in you know that they're not kind of i mean and that's also hiding, the right? industry yeah, right yeah too. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm surprised, and like the more we normalize this in town, I mean, we so like when people think cannabis in Salisbury, they they think about us because it's here. We're I'm on the news once a week. We we we've done a really good job of liaisoning with the community, and because of that, um, you know, City of Salisbury has revamped their employee policy, so their employees are now allowed to come into our dispensary if they have a medical card. That's great. I had a meeting. With I raised this issue exact issue with uh, uh, Gavin Buckley, mayor of Annapolis, very receptive policy guy, and um, um, guy Duan Gay, uh, incredible young um, ward leader, and exactly about that issue is to end the discrimination in city employees. We, and honestly, yeah. we see we have nurses coming in from the hospital in their scrubs. I mean, we have it all. Like mm. it really is um, uh, the most eclectic business that I've, I haven't seen any business be able to have a more eclectic, uh, you know, pop, patient population. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's really interesting when we look at how that transpires to the political spectrum. You know, one thing that I, that I researched and I found out that no matter how popular the bill is, it has less than a 5% chance of passing. Like if you just look at this, the sheer statistics mm-hmm. of how many bills get introduced versus <laughs> how many bills passed, so you're at a 95% failure rate of bills in general, and then you complicate that with something like cannabis, and it just seems like oftentimes, even though it's not such a divisive topic, politicians still don't feel overly comfortable touching it, and that's why you see a lot of referendum, you see a lot of letting the people make the decision. I mean, I, I think... 
I don't think other than I don't think there's very many states that have a, a program that wasn't voted on by the people. Mm-hmm. Almost every single program is. Well, been what's your I'll switch the turn the tables? What's your call? What's your vote for? Uh, I think you're close. I mean, I think I don't see any. On the end see, of a prohibition, federal prohibition. Yeah, I don't see any situation where the current president, anything happens within this Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point, the House looks favorable for bills, but the Senate is still... But there's, I, I, I was with, um, oh my gosh, for, uh, name blank on the senator, and just talking about, I mean, just the dysfunction in the Senate of that bills that make a ton of sense are just sitting and he's not moving them forward. And that's just wrong. It's just wrong. And I mean, you know, and then there's something that's cannabis focused. But yeah, I mean, talking, you know, going back to the conversation about the States Act, safe banking, um, and that people's lives, you know, I don't think the general public understands that um, what the risk of be working in this industry that, with. That we all, we, really we sign warrantless papers. Like the, we yeah. sign a paper that yeah. the government can come in and raid my house, my daughter's yeah. in bed at any yeah. given time without a warrant. Like, yeah. who would, what idiot would ever, yeah. Yeah. Who would ever subject themselves to that? But these are the things that, that, we, that we do. And I think... Um, so I, I, like everyone else, I'll be following the presidential race very closely and the senatorial um, races. I think that they have the largest impact at the federal level. I, you said five years. I would, I would argue that you're, you're spot on. I just, with that three to five years, I can't see anything happening any faster than that. And even at the state level, I mean, we saw that they had a working group, which- Right. You know, so, oh, and how about the name of that working group? Comar uses the word cannabis, and the name of this working group was the marijuana. marijuana. <laughs> Hello, wait, did you guys read Comar? <laughs> yeah, I'm like- Did you guys want us to be compliant? Yeah. Could you stop, stop calling the, the cannabis marijuana, Oh, I please? just wish those headlines about pot and, you yep. know, that just would go away, but- uh, yeah, but anyway, yeah. So, so at the state, at the state level, yeah. that working group. And I don't, so this is the anecdotal story that I heard was that as they're going through, that someone comes up with a great idea of well, let's take a field trip to Denver, Colorado, right. and go get a go to a baseball game, and that will be our our taste of whether or not Maryland yeah, on the yeah. East Coast should have a rec program. Like <laughs> it's going to be like anything like that. And of course, they go to the baseball game. And everybody smoking weed in Denver, Colorado, which is what happens yeah. in Denver, Colorado. Yeah, yeah. And um, and they all got the cold feet. So it doesn't seem like there's a lot of appetite for them at this point in time. But I think it's opening. You know, it's just it's the more and more. You know, you've seen. Um, well, what I had heard so that yeah, the work the work group as a whole is not going to recommend or has has come out and said we're not recommending legislation in favor of adult use. But every independent separate from that is every legislator is going to have a cannabis bill. Um, and I think, you know, it's that conversation, education. I don't think our market is ready for it. I, you know, I myself am not in favor of adult use at this time. I mean, especially what's going on with the licenses right now. Um, you know, the, the industry has its training wheels on and everybody needs to be steady. It's less than two years old. I mean, we are, right. we're on the first dispensaries to open our doors in December. I mean, we're going to celebrate our two year anniversary now. That's I mean, exciting. Still, yeah, congratulations. And there's still yeah. dispensaries out there that aren't licensed. Right. And there's still right. growers and processors out there who have technically won a license. We have a flower shortage. Right. right. Flower shortage. Right. I mean, oh. and that's national. Right. But here and, you know, and, and you guys being independent. Um, it's tough. Yeah. 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 So, this is going to get, in, I don't want to say uncomfortable, but like this is the, the reality of it. So I, I, I go back and forth because my original model was, was I 
was against adult use because I thought the medical program was a the best way to introduce cannabis to mm-hmm. a community. It was through physicians and through the medical focus, and I didn't want to lose that um, piece of it to the Cheech and Chong anti-establishment mm-hmm. vibe. But what I realized is that unless you eventually decriminalize, unless you either decriminalize it completely or or make adult use legal, there's always going to be there's always going to be repercussions uh, from a legal standpoint, and those repercussions are going to affect people differently. Mm-hmm. So we were talking before, and there's a million studies that will show you that if you're an African American male and you get arrested for cannabis versus a white male, statistically, your outcome is not PBJ, and Mm-mm. it gets put under the table. It's traditionally like affecting uh, the, rest the rest of your life and your communities and your communities mm-hmm. right um and nobody at this table in my opinion is a war on drugs fan i don't think right like no we don't think that that's i don't think we'd be in this industry <laughs> yeah <laughs> no yeah. yeah so um but i have all these concerns about if we do an adult use program too fast what happens to this medical program that exactly. is so important. And to your point, the training wheels are still on. Like mm-hmm. we're not we're nowhere near efficient or uh, as efficient as we can be in terms of a medical program. We're still working out a lot of kinks. I think Maryland's program is great. I think the MMCC does a, a good job for the task that they're given. But this is a learning experience. Well, and then we have these new commissioners coming in. Right? Who, and who knows what they're going to do? And they're not supposed to have any familiarity with the cannabis industry. And um, yeah, I mean, things like Maryland really needs some things and that I'm need to be cleaned up. And I'm hearing 70 bills being introduced, yeah. right? And yeah. like, and the, you know, the problem, we all know the problem, the problem with that is like we talked about earlier, the legislators don't really know what's in all these bills. You have 70 different bills and there's no unifying voice and like there's no, right. I mean, and, all, yeah. all of a sudden at the end of the day, you might get one or two done, right? Yeah. It's crazy. And, yeah. and some of them are super important for patients. Like, I think that if a pediatric patient should be able to utilize this, this medicine in school, if it's not effective, oh, absolutely. right? absolutely, right. That's that doesn't happen unless there's a bill and right. it passes committee, and then it like it has to go through this. Like it seems like a no-brainer, but that takes as much time to get through the House and the Senate as bills that don't. And I just like I, it. I, it, it it bothers me in the fact that like it, there's so many needs because cannabis has been treated so poorly and and so wrong for so many years that it's it's there are some chicken egg questions and there's mm-hmm. also some what's the most critical path if if you, you if I'm correct in what you mentioned that you that you don't think adult use in Maryland is appropriate right now and you think that the medical program should still continue to grow are there other initiatives that we could be taking to address some of the social justice issues outside of adult use and decriminalization, mm-hmm. in your opinion? Right. Well, and back to the point, you know, we have um, Senator Will Smith is coming. He'll be in session. So he um, was in the reserves and he left the, the last session and he was very vocal, very active. He was, uh, I think, um, um, uh, second in command of the Judiciary Committee, where a lot of the cannabis bills come out of so i think he you know having him back is going to be very effective moving the industry forward um you know following i mean to your question about what can be done social justice um let's say back you know 
back to a teapad where delegate Glenn came and spoke at our October 3rd event. And, and uh, she let everybody know that Maryland was the first state in the country to actually legislate that there had to be some social equity um, in the industry. And again, we've got these licenses on hold to make sure that happened. But then Illinois, um, shortly after that, when they um, saw that, yeah, so they included that a portion, um, they're actually uh, set up programs for funding, right? So that's, you know, like, um, it's all great that we can talk about the need for social justice, but what are you going to do, you know, to do some actionable items and whether it's um, state funded entrepreneurial training. Um, so yeah. that's so honestly, um, that's a great point. Like what I'm hearing is like, is that the folks that are out there that can help provide some resources like unfortunately there was really no resources for us right Right. when we started out but we could provide assistance and others in the industry could could provide assistance could provide access to capital like there's a lot of challenges that uh, entrepreneurs in the cannabis industry face that are unique to them and that that really gets exponentially harder if you're somebody without social means and things like that I mean honestly Mm -hmm. like I don't know I think I told you when we, we I spoke on the phone before this interview, but like we submitted two applications for fifty five hundred dollars, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and that was because we we self altered everything. We just we did everything ourselves through through sweat equity. The likelihood of of other folks being able to do that are really slim to none. Right? Oh, and I was a co applicant or co founded a team on the second round, and it was six figures. Yeah. 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 Just to get the application. To in. get the application. And at that point, you in. have no idea if the state even received. <laughs> like, right. I mean, it's uh, crazy to think that you're spending a ton of time and money on these things that oh, you have I an was, outside yeah. opportunity for, right? Right. I mean, and that's, you know, talking about an entrepreneur in the industry and doing something like that, it's like definitely, you know, uh, high risk, high reward. But so is that kind yeah. of where the T-Pod, T-Pad, uh, T-Pad, T-Pad, yep, sorry, yep, T-Pad yep. scholarships <laughs> come in? To try to fund some stuff like that, you said. I think you had we. It's a focus on um, entrepreneurship. You know that um, so that um, uh, whoever wins the scholarship um, or is awarded the scholarships rather has access to the skills, um, the education to learn the skills to become an innovator, a leader, and an entrepreneur. Um, and that is, um, you know, one conversation where I had, uh, initially launched the uh, scholarship with Morgan State University. And I'm having a conversation with one of um, TPAD advisory board members and that um, within where I initially set up the scholarship where it would be within the entrepreneurship program in the school of business. But yet it, I mean, as we know the industry, as I say, this industry is actually three in one, right? You have cultivation, which is agriculture, you have processing, which is manufacturing, and then you have dispensary, which is retail, right? And so you have all these studies, um, areas of studies within um, your secondary education that go into that, whether it's engineering, you're gonna go into manufacturing, or you're in the ag program. Um, So the scholarship has to be um, available to, you know, anybody and, and of course meeting um criterion that's awesome yep um, thanks <clears throat> we also are seeing uh so i think it's it's, it's important to encourage participation right for for all groups so no one's marginalized uh one thing that i'm also seeing is a lot of participation on the hemp industry side uh from folks because mm-hmm. the barrier of entry is a little bit lower right some of these folks are it's a more level playing field at this point um so that's it's just it's interesting to see it's a concept also that hemp, you know, CBD, it's easier for people to grasp 
it's not scary. Of course, you know, that goes back to the stigma, but that um, just, you know, what the products that are coming out of the hemp industry. Um, so I think, you know, it's easier for people to relate. Really not limited license, right? Which yeah. helps. I mean, the limited license piece is what drives up a lot of the barriers of entry. Right, I mean, right. Honestly, for me, when I saw those second round of licenses coming out, I just, I knew it was going to be a clusterfuck. There was zero, I had zero doubts that a license that coveted was it going to come without corruption, was it going to come out without manipulation, and was mm-hmm. it going to come without red tape and baggage. Yeah, four licenses for four. grow. And yeah. ten, and ten, I mean, it was just ten, ten processors. In a state where the demand is higher than the supply and... Yeah. And it's so unfortunate. You have the existing license holders, you know, are quadrupling their space. There's going to be such unfair market advantage. Um, You know, and two... And it's not even a great great market to enter. So now, (laughs) congratulations, we're going to give you this... This license is go go raise millions yeah, of dollars. Raise millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah. You're three years behind everybody else yeah. in terms of build out. Margins are down. Margins Every, are down. You know what I mean? Yeah. The yeah. the economy of scale, like everything. And I just But you know what's interesting? So with um what's going on nationally is that with the the price of cannabis when a new market comes uh your product comes into a new market that was 1600 was the like oh my god that's crazy when maryland came to market and then um i'm involved with i'm raising some capital in maryland it's four i mean in in massachusetts it's four thousand right so that's two years later and of course you know it's always that market the new market is the highest in the country at that time but it's demand i mean it's just that's you know the laws of economics we're seeing that happen now so we're seeing that it was really weird. So about a year ago, the market was flooded with flour. I had 70 strains on my board. These guys are telling me, look, you need to cut down. You have terpene redundancy. It's too confusing for patients. Mm-hmm. They don't know what to do. Like, we don't need this much flour. And then, you know, the cultivators, a lot of them weeded out the phenotypes um, and cut strains down and then some of them had some issues fires and different types of things that happen and all of a sudden now we find ourselves in this like the shortage where pricing is now going back up for flour demand is is there it's it's a really like i was scared we had a really busy week last week as most dispensaries did in the state and um my first question to the gm this morning is what's our flour supply look like like are we bare oh, we yeah had Mondays, yeah you we guys wipe, wiped with, out we're not not okay. we're not um it seems like it seems like right now we're in a good spot it seems like a, that there's a, a lot of flour coming from the fall harvest that is now cured and is right coming right out we just there. had the harvest right um so, but I'm hesitant to be overly optimistic. Um, the, it's great news, but we're adding thousands of new patients every month to the program, right? So they're expecting That's another incredible. fifty thousand patients by this time next year, putting us mm-hmm. like one hundred forty thousand total. Yeah, that's a lot of patients, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and that back to the original metric was when you were looking at the. I don't know what you used for when you were writing your um, application. Patient participation. Yeah, it was like two percent. of one point six. I think we used one point two. Oh, mm-hmm. really? Low. Yeah. Wow, that was low. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, do the math and yeah. where we are. Maryland's population is six point one million. Yeah. Right. That's crazy. So where yeah. are we at? Are we closer to like three? Uh, right now, I don't know off the top of my head. The last time. Don't know how many patients there are today off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. We um, used Arizona was kind of our benchmark. Right. Yeah. The Maryland. Um, yes. I mean, that's been a state that we've been looking at. Right. To model. 
um, Maryland, and then size wise, also good Nevada. Dispensaries in Salisbury, though, at least, or yeah. at least two. Yeah. So when we did it, we kind of took that into consideration too, and not just looked at it as a whole, but more or less just that micro level, like down of our piece of the pie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I live in Anne Arundel County, so we had. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So we're, we're <laughs> well, he voted. He was voted CJ. out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, right. CJ. Yep. And yeah, Manic. So yep. We're, we're really close with CJ. Yeah. Um, our dispensaries model each other in a lot. We use a lot of the same systems. We mm-hmm. very collaborative. Um, and he had to have a traffic study and a septic yeah. study. Oh, it was they, crazy it was, what the former county executive was putting yeah. this industry through. And then now who the got are, up and running the dispensary? Yeah, the first one in Anne Arundel County. Uh, Tony, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, or I'm sorry, second. Yeah, not Tony. Yeah, another one. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that one. Um, yeah, but it's crazy. But that's just, and that's another thing about the cannabis, that, like the zoning, right? Mm-hmm. Zoning is a local issue, and people don't realize that. So you can have legislation at the state level that says, okay, you're allowed to open. And then when it comes down to it, you got to fight the local, the county oh, there was government, a bill the city in government, the uh, yeah, everything to, else. Yeah, to override the county override. executive. Well, yeah. in Queen Anne's County, they passed a bill, and they said they had to go into an industrial zone. That's why Ash and Ember, speaking of not mentioning names, um, <laughs> are, uh, are in an industrial park because they had to be. They originally were looking to go right by the Route 50 outlets. Um, once again, we were blessed. I mean... Before we wrote our application, I had a letter of recommendation from the mayor, chief of police. We told everybody exactly what we were doing, mm-hmm. what our intentions were, and wanted to make sure that, that if we did somehow get a license, that it weren't going to be like, you know, told to go somewhere else or weren't going to be able to afford to bring it to fruition. Because we, we obviously didn't have the, the manpower or the money to be able to fight those types of battles. Like, we really got lucky that we had a little bit of capital to get us through a path that we needed to get through and we didn't have any bad headaches and we got through that path and got open yeah like you said you're blessed yeah, yeah. unfortunate well, yeah for sure yeah um there's no way that we do this without some luck some level of luck as much as i'd like to pat ourselves on the back we got there was some things that that happened that went our way and um and we're grateful for that and we're at this point now paying it back and we're we're really doubling down i mean anything that we've accomplished so far we're reinvesting into this new campus and really trying to disrupt the way yeah i applaud your um the new campus and your uh the medical focus you know staying in that lane i mean that's you know as markets come as the adult use markets are secondary to that medical market and that's the model across the country and that yes sales in the adult use exceed medical but what's going to win out in the end is medical you know yeah. I, that's our belief we're, yeah. we're betting on cannabinoid based wellness that cbd shouldn't be looked at as a separate chemical that cbg cbn cb cbd thc all the cannabinoids mm-hmm. hundreds of them should all be looked at is uh, how they interact with the endocannabinoid system and that building this the center will allow us to do things um more aggressively in terms of tracking patient outcomes in terms of getting some actual data dan corpon is that's his background he's a data scientist whatever that means i don't know data is my <laughs> um, cannabis md we hosted an event uh, focused on data i mean what well, was innovation in the industry but i had a, a great uh, fantastic um Zinia Grinsky, one of my favorite names ever. Um, That's a name. Isn't that a good name? Yeah. yeah. So for a, a female data scientist, and we actually met at a, an industry conference and just bonded. But in any event, so you know, had a lot of folks. I mean, to be successful um, in this industry, any industry is data. Data driven. And um, back to my uh, soon-to-be intern, her minor is in data. I said, whatever you do, do not lose that minor. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's so it's important. Is, yeah. It's capturing that data and what his, how his powerful last position it is. was at Anne Arundel Medical Center, mm-hmm. so in a hospital setting. He's part of Hogan's opioid team. Mm-hmm. So we're really excited when we get into this new facility to be able to really start tracking. We actually launched so in the in the new facility we'll have three divisions of our business. So we have the dispensary that will be much more like a, a pharmacy that's just dispensing. Um, we'll have a patient services division. That's where all the consultations will happen. That's where we'll actually be able to service patients. And then, of course, we'll continue with our CBD stuff. But on the patient services side, about a month ago, we implemented a new practice management software that we're working with a physician, and basically they're able to see notes. Mm-hmm. And it's so much different, right? Because oftentimes the, phys- the patients come to us. They're not talking to their physicians. They, there's no communication. We don't know with the what the patient is telling us is just experiential or if it's actually truth. You know, and I've being a um, of course a, um, a healthcare I mean, a patient myself, and I go into my primary or whatever, and that you see the the EHR, the electronic health record, and it's like, okay, what, what medications you are on? Oh no, wait, does this one doesn't have medical? It's always medical marijuana, yeah. but you know whether it does or does not have, and that's yeah, physicians need to be aware of this, and yeah, anyway. So, back to what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. so it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing. Like, you know, we had a patient who lost a Xanax and mm-hmm. then came to us with some similar stories about losing some medication, why he was going through so much. Mm-hmm. But we were, without the communication with us and the patient uh, and the physician, we probably would have both kind of been operating in the dark. But we, uh, we were very able, uh, very quickly able to determine some trends and yeah, some things yeah. that were happening. I and mean, that is, it's crazy. There's, um, do you know what a RIO is? R-H-I-O. It's a regional health information organization. And so this is in um, Maryland. There's something called CRISP. Yeah. 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 And so to have that patient, you know, is when a patient, you know, moves around the healthcare systems and providers within the state, you know, all that information is in the cloud. And that that the MMCC is not partnered with CRISP is Dr. Hoffman can't because she has access to CRISP as a pharmacist, yeah. but she can't have it unless she's tied to a pharmacy. Yeah, it's just wrong. So because yeah. metric operates a lot like CRISP does, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's 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 unfortunate that we don't have access to that, or if we had a medical, you know. And I understand that not all dispensaries would have the need for that. If you don't have a clinical director, you don't actually have a clinical focus, then you probably don't need the access to Chris. But if you're going to do this interdisciplinary approach. I mean, well, that goes back to why don't you have a clinical director? And we because are in a medical shall program. Versus May, right? Yeah. yeah. Shall versus May. <laughs> we interpreted it one way, and I guess everybody else did the other. Yeah. And I'm, I'm truthfully glad that we, glad didn't, we did yeah. that we did it the way that we did it. Um, you know, we made Dr. Hoffman a partner in the very, very beginning. I met her for three days and, and we gave her an equal piece of, of what we do. Because um, I, I knew that for us to, to do what I wanted to do. So when we built our model, I came up with. A patient who is a 65-year-old woman who gets Lyme disease, who's never used cannabis a day in her life, and if she can walk into our dispensary and feel safe and secure and we can take care of that patient, then we can handle anybody. Like anybody also feel comfortable there. So that was our mindset. And to not have a clinical director who was from a, a medical professional, either a doctor or a pharmacist, to us wasn't an option. So we were going to do that no matter what. But it is unfortunate that a lot of the dispensaries out there don't have it. Um, they have bud tenders. They. I just think, I mean, it just... It's just wrong. I mean, we are, again, a medical market. And why a dispensary doesn't have a clinical director? And, you know, a lot of in the marketing and stuff is all recreational looking. So no wonder. Right. Street price Tuesdays and shit like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, mean, the blast that you get and what you see. And, you know, I was just rereading the regs. 
the advertising yeah. regs the other day. And, it's, yeah. and people wonder why, you know, there's still that shadow cast on the industry because when they look outwardly, like, that's what they see. They yeah. see. And we always tell people, like, it's our job to bring the professionalism and the medical side of it to life. Yeah, that's, that's my, what, you know, my tagline of Cannabis MD is educate um, and uh, build and engage. And so, you know, number one is to, to educate, you know, whether it is a provider or whomever it is, um, and then build and build this coalition, and then engagement is everybody within this ecosystem. Um, so originally you were asked what you didn't want to talk about and you put CBD down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's changed? <laughs> um, actually, uh, deep dive of CBD currently in my master's program. Got it. And I think, um, you know, was, let's see, is that, um, you know, I've put my nose up at the industry, quite frankly, that it's snake oil. Um, but it's just... Um, you know, so many people ask me about it. I mean, it's everywhere and it, it is patient safety. And that's, uh, I would say, you know, the two things that are paramount to me professionally, um, education and right there tied is patient safety. And so um, that folks have no idea what they're getting, that companies are taking industrial waste <laughs> and creating products that folks are going to ingest, you know, heavy metals, I mean, all the garbage that is in this and as you were saying before we got online here was you know you're listening to your gas attendant yeah gonna counsel you on how you're you gonna go use your yeah. you, you see the, the the promotion right on that gas pump and say damn it my inflammation's had enough yeah. today i'm gonna get on the cb regimen i'm gonna get this 32 I'm gonna, ounce i'm gonna go soda up in and, and, and i, I talked to wayne right? at the counter and <laughs> wayne was way more influential in talking about copenhagen and freaking grizzly dip than he probably is about cbd yeah and then you know my experience in malta is that um, in the EU, the European Union, and they, um, what's missing in the United States here, uh, GMP, good good manufacturing or uh, processes. Yep, for the industry, and that is in the CBD industry in Europe. So you know wherever you are within the EU, what you have gotten, and that's patient safety, and it's it's, it's just so far more sophisticated and just makes sense, doesn't it? It does. So hundred percent. Yeah, we changed our model. So we originally business to consumer, and I went to I went to a show in Atlantic City where I was expecting to go to a a glass show, um, and every other vendor was CBD. Yeah. And it was high as giraffe balls CBD. It was oh my God. like the most ridiculous stuff um, that I have uh, I've seen. And I felt so disenfranchised when I came back. Like, how do I get through the noise? How do I? Right, right. That's exactly so, it. How do you get through the noise? So we changed our model. So we only sell, we sell a little bit direct to consumer um, if you come to our, our website. But for the most part, you know Nurse Laura. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Hoffman, we sell B2B so that the practitioners that we sell to can support the product properly. So um, Nurse Laura will go to a physician, she'll give the education to the physician, she'll work with the physician on patients that are high risk or outside the norm. Because to your point, there was two things that when we brought a CBD product to the market that we want to differentiate ourselves. A is the quality of the product. So. We source only domestic hemp from the East Coast. We manufacture right in Cambridge, Maryland. We're at the manufacturing facility. Um, and everything's tested. And then once we get their lab yeah. results, then we send everything out to the great folks at Atlantic Testing mm -hmm. Labs, who are MMCC-approved testing facility. And the sponsor for TPAD, title sponsor, sponsor for TPAD. Shout out to them. <laughs> yeah. um, and they give us a full batch batch results. So we get cannabinoids, terpenes, heavy metals, microbials, everything. And, and that 
is what I needed to be able to know that I wasn't selling snake oil, that I was selling mm-hmm. a really high quality product. I was honestly, I was, I was nervous the first time that I sent our stuff to a third party lab mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. unless you get it tested, you don't. You don't know, right? Right, right. Uh, I'm happy that we're now in six dispensaries, uh, retail stops um, that sell our product. And it's, um, it's to your point, I do think it's kind of cheap to just isolate CBD and say, well, I only do CBD. Like, so what if a patient needs a one-to-one? Or a 16 well, and I think CBD a- is the the entry point to get into the medical cannabis industry. Is that um, you know people are so fearful of it because of that stigma, and everybody is asking about CBD, and it's just so f- far more accepted. And um, you know, okay, well here's CBD. Well, if you add just a little bit of THC, and you have something called the entourage effect, effect yeah. and how much more beneficial it is for you. Um, it's yeah, certainly yeah. like. You know, we talk about it as, as um, an introduction, very much so, because mm-hmm. if you can get someone to try CBD and then just tell them they have an endocannabinoid system and mm-hmm. teach them about inflammation and teach, like, it be, to your point, like, a lot of this is education. It becomes a starting point. We start talking about that, and then we work our way up. So um, I understand completely why... Uh, you know, you had some hesitation around CBD. I wanted to get it. I, just, I wanted to know for myself, but it makes complete sense. Um, it, it can be a, a rabbit hole in itself. And, you know, for us, it's just a cannabinoid that should be looked at as a, and to your point, as an entourage of mm-hmm. cannabinoids that can, that can interact with your body and, and create some great results. Thank you so much. This is great. This is awesome. It could just we, go we on. Can, we'll yeah. do this again. You promise? <laughs> oh, promise. Promise come back. Yeah. Maybe next um, time we summertime? Come back, we'll, actually have yeah. A, we'll have a new studio. Yeah, we'll actually have like, legit. Thank we'll you so much for dealing with our squatting. Oh, wait. No, no, no. We're going to do tea pad, remember, in the spring. Yeah. So here on the that? Eastern Shore. Uh, we are. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I'm yeah, super yeah. excited to yeah. be able to bring and, and help facilitate that. Um, and that's something I think a lot of people on the shore, I will say, at least speaking from uh, you know, at least our staff members and some of our patients, like every time it's like, oh, anybody want to get a spark? It's two and a half hours away on the other side of the bridge. So there's really nothing kind of yeah. down here on the yeah. shore. Yeah, they've done a good job and T-Pad's a little bit different than Spark. Sure. I mean, again, we're making yep. that impact with social justice and um, higher level conversations going on there but yeah really excited and then um we have uh cannabis md uh we're hosting a uh, provider forum on uh science and um clinical therapeutics of medical cannabis in february so where can yeah. folks um learn more about what you have going on give them uh, all your yeah sure addresses um and- so t-e-a-p-a-d.co and maybe just a quick intro of what t-pad or explanation of what t-pad is so historically, tea pads were speakeasies in the 20s and 30s where uh, marijuana was introduced, using the vernacular, was introduced to the African-American Jazz clubs community. And- yep. Uh, so migrating up from New Orleans and then to Harlem, which so much great music, the jazz, great. So, uh, Duke Ellington, Billy Holiday, Cap Calloway, of course, from um, from Maryland. And so borrowed that name for our network group. So tea pads are a blast where we have um, about an hour. Uh, folks get with their ticket. Uh, proceeds of the ticket price goes to the scholarship. Everybody gets a drink coupon and um, great food and folks network for an hour and then we have a provocative um, keynote speaker, somebody who's related to the industry, whether we had Cheryl um, Glennigan, Delegate Glenn, we wouldn't have an industry in Maryland without her. We had uh, Dean Natalie. Her mom Natalie is Dalian Parade, if you're not familiar. Mm-hmm. She's definitely one of the 
largest proponents of getting this bill passed in 2014, 13, 12? 13, yeah. 12, yeah. whatever. Yeah. And, time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we survived yeah. so far. <laughs> but, um, and then um, this next one, we have Cory Booker. Uh, I'm sorry, Cory Booker. Cory Barnett, I always call him oh. Cara Booker. Cory Barnett, who uh, less than 1% of all cannabis business licenses are owned uh, by African Americans. And Cory owns two in DC, owns a, um, a grow and a dispensary. So he's going to be speaking to his um, personal experience as an entrepreneur in the cannabis industry. He's also equity stakeholder in other markets and then kicking off a provocative conversation of what social justice in the, in the industry should look like. Um, and then Cannabis MD, uh, CannabisMD.com. And uh, the next event that um, partnering with a great friend and colleague in the industry, Fleecy Hubbard, um, we met in the industry in Maryland and she moved to take a deep dive into California. Um, but coming back and uh, supporting me with this forum for providers, again, healthcare providers in- um, Where's that at? We don't know, so I'm, I'm hoping that it will be, we're planning it right now, um, either at the School of Pharmacy, uh, uh, Felici was working at the um, University of Maryland Medical School for many years, so hopefully that'll get us an entree there. And again, you know, having in a clinical space, so to yeah, speak. Helps. Yeah, so um, that'll be February 22nd, it's um, uh, in uh, 2020. Thank you so much for coming on, I really, Thank really you. appreciate it. Enjoyed it. Thanks.